0: This song opened up on the radio on this day in 1991. Little Nirvana with you early in the morning on the Dave Elford Show. You're driving into work right now, banging your head. I know, I am. What a great song! (laughs) Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit hit the radio this day, 29 years ago, 1991. Unbelievable how fast time flies by. I mean, I was 38 years old then. (laughs) How's that one? I was saying, I was quizzing Heidi and I was quizzing. uh, Seth about the song, and they hadn't even been born yet. That Now, that really makes me wow. feel old. And J.R. was only five years old. I mean, he was just got, he'd just been out of diapers for a couple of years. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you, you got me. I couldn't think uh, for the life of me what you were talking about. I was like, what song? 1991. But, yeah. As soon song, as you heard it, you song. knew
0: what it was, oh, huh? Yeah.
1: Hundred percent.
0: That's right. You cannot. uh, You cannot not. If you're a rock and roll lover, you cannot not know that show. We've done two big rock and roll uh, questions uh, the last two days. Yesterday was the was uh, the anniversary sixty four years ago when Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. Wow! And so we played the song that sixty four years. Wow. Sixty four years, and they showed him. Completely, he had been on Steve Allen and a couple other shows, but they had only shown him from the waist up. They showed, they actually showed him in full body, uh, in the, uh, the, the show for the, uh, uh, Ed Sullivan show and watched him wiggle his hips, which was thought obscene in the, in the, in 64. How far have we come in 64 years? Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine if we had some, like, uh, uh, Artist on you know whatever yeah. channel, and that was the only thing they did. I think they'd be like, oh, well, what's what's this guy? This is so yeah, put, boring. This is ridiculous. Yeah, put
0: put put Miley Cyrus on back sixty four right, years right. ago. We've A little gone wrecking, from, little it, wrecking ball. <laughs> yeah, we we yeah exactly. We've done the. Uh, we've gone from
1: uh, shaking the hips to twerking uh, in sixty four yeah, no years. Kid. So very very um,
0: different types. Hope. Yeah, there is no doubt about that. Speaking of uh, different times, on this day in 1897, 25-year-old London taxi driver George Smith became the first person ever to be arrested for drunk driving after he slammed his cab into a building. He was found guilty and fined 25 shillings. I have no idea how much that zeroes out to. In the United States, the uh, first laws against operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of alcohol went into effect in New York City in 1910. There you go. How about that one? And then if you pulled yeah, over yeah. and they want to see if you're uh, drunk, you'd use the uh, uh, breathalyzer. Remember, you know that, right? You know when that, uh, that came about? They came about The year I was born, 1953. That's when the, the, and and it hasn't changed all that much. So anyway, I just thought you guys, I like to look back at history, and I I thought those were pretty cool, to be honest. I I just thought those were some pretty cool things. All right, with with that said, let's talk about big stories that broke yesterday. I was sitting here watching Fox News, and uh, they were carrying a the president and he was doing a little uh, press conference and he was talking about uh, names that he was adding to the list uh, dealing with uh, the Supreme Court and his picks uh, new na- other names that he wanted to put on his list for picks for the Supreme Court he said hey look let's let me show you the difference between whom I'm going to pick and who Biden is going to pick he said Biden let out a list and it's all a bunch of libs and then he uh, gave this give, gave his list and there was one name i mean i i literally went back on my tv to listen to it again to make sure i hadn't heard it wrong tom cotton is on the list for the president uh for somebody that he might nomin- uh, nominate for the supreme court seth what do you think about that
2: Well, I, like you, Dave, had to go back and rewatch it just to make sure (laughs) my ears did not deceive me, you know. But, hey, I think when we look at Senator Cotton, we're looking at the future of the conservative movement. We're looking at the future of the Republican Party. If you look at the Senate, uh, there's nobody, maybe Lindsey Graham, just for the number of years he's been there. But when you think of foreign affairs and the leading voices, Tom Cotton is right up there at the top when you look back at the Republican convention a couple weeks ago, Tom Cotton was one of very few senators to have a a speaking spot. Not only did he have a speaking spot, he spoke on the night that the president did. So I think placement tells you something as well. And then to receive some news like this, that you make uh, the short list. And again, among a very short company in the Senate, the only other senators named were Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley, I believe Senator Mike Lee of Utah was on the original list from 2016, yes, he was. so That's right. So right, you've only got four senators on that list, and I think it's very exciting news. You saw Tom Cotton very quickly uh, tweet out uh, that the first amendment cannot be infringed and that the second amendment means what it says and that it's time to overturn Roe v. Wade. <laughs> which tells you yeah. he's a go-getter and and these these things mean what they mean and there's no No room for uh, real interpretation on that. So, no, I think it's very exciting. The the only caveat I'd give to people is uh, to nominate a United States senator like that would really determine sort of where our Senate majority is, because surely whoever is nominated will not be voting for themselves. So you remove one vote in that equation. So it, it really makes important, A, that we elect Donald Trump in November, or else this list doesn't mean anything, but B that we elect a Republican Senate with enough of a majority uh, to withstand any pressure that those like Susan Collins, if she wins her tough race, will surely face uh, for a for Supreme Court fight. But no, on the whole, I think it's it's in, incredibly exciting. And once again, it's Senator Tom Cotton punching above Arkansas weight class on the national scene.
0: What do you think about that, Jr? I mean, that that was just a big a big get for the for the senator, the junior senator.
1: Absolutely. I think it speaks to the level of confidence President Trump has in Senator Cotton, I think, uh, not just as a confidant, but knowing his education and background. And I think he you make a terrific uh, jurist. I mean, and look, for those sitting at home right now and, and think just because of sort of modern history that um, you know, I, I saw um Democratic Party of Arkansas Chairman Michael John Gray's comments in the paper this morning saying, quote, there's no way anybody with half a brain is going to appoint a partisan person like that to the Supreme Court. It's a stunt.
0: No, it would take a Democrat to do that.
1: Well, I just think he goes on and says it's crazy, <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. The fact that anybody would entertain it makes it even more ridiculous. Well here's here's a little history lesson for you. There have been fifty eight uh, members of the Supreme Court that have been formally elected officials: seventeen from the House, fifteen from the Senate. Wow. We've had former president uh, uh, be appointed mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court. Salmon P. Chase, former governor of Ohio, who ran against Abraham Lincoln uh, in that and that uh, storied primary uh, before the Civil War. Uh, he was appointed. He was a staunch abolitionist at the time. There have been justices appointed to the court with opinions, uh, with with partisan opinions, especially at that time. Uh, we've even heard, uh, you know, the fact that you know Barack Obama could be on the list for Joe Biden if he becomes uh, president. So the idea uh, that anyone, especially someone. You know that that leads a party here in Arkansas thinks it's ridiculous that that this would never happen Uh, probably needs to read up a little bit on their history because this is not something that's a stretch by any uh, means. And I think uh, Tom Cotton is in good position uh, uh, for this opportunity to Seth's point. A lot would have to happen. A lot of pieces would have to fall into place, Um, but it's a, it's a badge of honor just to be, uh, added to that list for sure yeah it
0: really is it's a, it's a huge badge of honor and I you know, see those big uh, congratulations from me to uh, Senator Cotton it's a big deal hey here's what he had to say I got a quote from him I'm honored that President Trump asked me to consider serving on the Supreme Court I'm grateful for his confidence I will always heed the call of service to our nation the Supreme Court could use some more justices who understand the difference between applying the law and making the law, which the court does when it invents a right to abortion, infringes on religious liberty, and erodes the Second Amendment. Wow. Strong statement. That's such a strong statement. I mean really is. Yeah. So th- Here's the other thing too,
1: when you go through it, let's say that, you know, uh Trump wins re election and Tom Cotton is his nominee, uh, and he goes before all this and, and to Seth's point. You've got the votes. <laughs> In some ways, this is sort of more of a cut dry type of uh, nomination because, look, uh, uh, this is you know you don't have to worry about where Tom. You know exactly where Tom Cotton falls on, on these particular issues. <laughs> no it would be doubt a very interesting. That. Oh yeah, it would be a very very. Uh, interesting interview process, if you will, in the Senate. Uh, it would be very uh, fun to watch. But again, it's not like you're having to dig through all these, you know, past things just to be like, oh, well, they wrote something about, you know, abortion or whatever. I mean, he's laying it out there. <laughs> there's no uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's pretty clear where he stands on the issues.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that at all. And, you know, just interesting, Seth, I mean, I mean, that it, it came out of nowhere yesterday. I mean, it was so bizarre. I'm sitting here watching TV, and the president says, these are the uh, additional names I'm going to add to my 20 for the Supreme Court. And he said Ted Cruz, and, and then he said Tom Cotton, then he said Hawley. Mm-hmm. You know? And I was
2: like, wait a what? <laughs> yeah. Well, and you saw, too, that Senators Cotton and Hawley had statements, you know, ready to tweet out and put on Facebook, Immediately, as the announcement was made, so they had certainly uh, been in consultation. One thing that occurred to me, Jr. talking about the confirmation process, is we thought Kamala Harris was unhinged against Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, If you imagine (laughs) her losing in November, returning to the Senate, and having to be on the Judiciary Committee hearing Tom Cotton come before the committee, (laughs) if you thought you saw unhinged before, uh, just hold on to your seat. Oh, for all of them.
0: The left they'll go yeah, crazy anybody. about you know yep. Cruz or Cotton or Hawley. Oh my lord! They'll come. They will come unglued. Really, it it will be quite the spectacle to say the least. And and they will try to bork all three of those guys.
1: Yep. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was interesting too. Again, in the Democratic Gazette this morning, here in our reading, uh, you know, Senator Cotton talking about you know. The fact that the White House and staff had reached out to him two months prior just to see if he, you know, be willing to be added to this list. It's, it's just a very uh, interesting process, uh, uh, very, uh, again, just of that badge of honor that you go through all of this just to be added to the list. Yeah. Um, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, look, uh, I, I think it's very disingenuous for any Democrat to, you know, like, Basically, push down or uh, point out that some, that you know in, that Donald Trump's um, uh, you know nominees to the Supreme Court are political, and uh, you know this is just absolutely ludicrous. As Michael John Gross said, I, I think that's hysterical because I'm telling you right now, if Joe Biden wins the presidency just imagine the next Supreme Court justice uh, that they try to put on the bench. It will be it will be just as bad to the left uh, as Republicans. So it's just this sort of uh, consistent cadence and and expectation we have of Democrats that they say one thing publicly and do the exact opposite uh, when it comes to, to acting. Um, and uh, And so it's just just again you 'll hear it right it's that moral oh it can 't be political, they need to be nonpartisan, blah 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 blah, blah blah, and then they do go yes. and do exactly what they tell you you shouldn 't so yeah, you well know, uh, I talked Democrats. about this
0: Tuesday, uh, the Democrats and the left are notorious for projecting. And that's exactly what they're doing when you listen to them right now. 21 after Mm -hmm. 6, J.R. Davis is here from the Gilmore Group. Seth Mays is here from the Arkansas Republican Party. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the president because, you know, he finds himself a little bit in hot water because of what he said to uh, Bob Woodward for a book called Rage. We'll talk about that when we continue on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, so yesterday, story comes out, Bob Woodward has sat down uh, to talk with the president. He's written a new book called Rage, which means whatever you have that you're the author of... And it's the biggest, whatever the biggest get you think you got out of your interview, that's what you lead with to sell books. So Bob Woodward came out yesterday and said, hey, look, I've got the tapes. Uh, I'll play them for you. Uh, the president told me back in February, maybe may have been early, late, late January, but it was very early on, on uh, COVID-19, saying that, Bob, this stuff is airborne. is uh, it's it's it's, na- it's a nasty virus. It's it's going to be tough on our country, and uh, but then in the interview he says, "Look, uh, I'm going to go easy telling the American people about this because I don't want to start a panic." Now you yeah. tell me, look, as a father, let me just let me explain. I knew. Uh, at one time, I was going to get—I re- was getting ready to lose my job at a radio station. They had told me it was going to happen because they felt they had to cut back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, when I went and told my family about it. You know, I didn't sit down and say, oh, my God, everybody, I'm losing my job. We'll have no income coming in for who knows how long. Uh, That's not the way I sat down and told my family. I sat down and said, hey, look, I've been told that they're cutting back at the station. Uh, That means they're going to cut back on on my employment. Uh, I'm already looking for another place to go to. We won't have uh, any big problems finding somewhere. Things might get a little tight. But don't worry, we'll come through this uh, smelling like a roast. Now, that's the way I approach that. Why, as a president of the United States, you think I'm going to go on television, look at the cameras and say, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, we have a virus that's yep. coming that's going to kill maybe hundreds of thousands. And at that time, there were people predicting millions of people. Remember?
3: That's right. Yep. yep. Oh, yeah.
0: Those
1: those those initial numbers were absolutely so far off and i still blame the knee-jerk reaction from a lot of our you know medical professionals uh or you know even from like johns hopkins measuring these numbers i'm not saying that they were wrong to do so but this immediate reaction that millions are going to die and then those estimates were uh You know, cut way off Way down uh, after You know, a few weeks of this And I think that's what really lost A lot of the public's trust When they said, oh, this was supposed to be A whole lot worse And this isn't that bad, you know, in hindsight When you actually look at it We're we're feeling pretty good about this Like that that's what happened That was the immediate sort of decision That was made to get that information out there And then once it came out That it wasn't even going to be close to that Nowhere close to it I think that's where you lost a lot of uh, of the public's trust.
0: Well, I'm going to tell you what, and, and Seth, I'm going to talk us in the news right now, and then we'll come back and I'm going to get you involved. But I was in the military, as you both know. And I will tell you this. There were times that I sat down with officers and they told me that we were going to do this and this, and I knew that they were downplaying what they were saying because they didn't want – to spook me about what was getting ready to come, I've been I've been privileged to some things that a lot of people you would have really spooked them if they'd been sitting in the in the meetings that I sat, that I sat in because I was doing all the internal information for the at the for the Air Force at the time and I knew stuff that I couldn't talk about and I'm just telling you they go out of their way not to spook people. All right, here's the news. All right, so, Seth, let's let's get back and start with you. We're talking about this stuff coming out by uh, Woodward in the new book called Rage that I think uh, is being hit in the stands either today or tomorrow. Uh, and um, saying that in his interviews with the president back early on this year that he, uh, the president, said that uh, he understood that the COVID-19 virus was going to be a deadly virus. Now, with that said, that's what he was being told at that time. I think some of that has changed over time. But does this hurt the president, do you think? I, I think that his his answer about why he said what he said was uh, apropos for the time.
2: Well, and I think most Americans would probably agree you know, the the thing is, a lot of times Democrats will accuse the president of inciting animosity or anxiety or just general fear. Well, you can listen to the tapes that Bob Woodward did from his interviews with the president, and you get the exact opposite picture. You get the picture of somebody that wants to bring calm to the country, uh, wants to, live, to deliver them direct facts. As Dr. Fauci said yesterday, Democrats... I always like to try and uh, give the suggestion that there's daylight between the president and Dr. Fauci. But I've got a quote here from Dr. Fauci yesterday, quote, but, you know, in my discussions and the discussions of other task force members with the president, we're talking about the reality of what was going on. And then when we get up in front of the press conferences, which were very, very common after our discussions with the president, he really didn't say anything different than we discussed when we were with him. I may not be tuned into the right thing that they're talking about, but I didn't see any discrepancies between what he told us and what he told him, Woodward, and what he came out publicly and said. So, no, I think most people uh, really connect with that message of wanting to bring peace and calm. You're right. As you mentioned before the break, if the president had gotten up and said, listen up, folks, hundreds of thousands of folks are going to die Or if J.R. said if we believed the projections from John Hopkins and others up in the millions, then it would have been absolute panic. Uh, So I think the president being blunt about wanting to be uh, the calming voice in this, I think, is reassuring to a lot of Americans. And let's be clear here. The Democrats' contention is that the president has cost the country American lives. Let's stipulate for the purpose of argument that that is true, which I think all three of us would take issue with. But for the purpose of argument, if that is true, we know that Joe Biden would have done less. He would not have done the travel bans that's in China. That's exactly right. From the European Union, from the UK. So even if you stipulate that the president's actions cost lives, again, we don't. We take issue with that. If that's true, Joe Biden told you he would have done less, folks. It's not yeah. it's not that complicated. Yeah,
0: Nancy Pelosi said, "Come on down to Chinatown." Yeah, that's exactly right, and you've
1: got the two most vocal Democrats out there with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, and both have had tremendous issues of their own during this whole entire uh, pandemic, and you just mentioned one, day with Nancy Pelosi, the other is Chuck Schumer, who, you know, uh, by the governor of New York's own admission, felt like uh, Chuck Schumer did not do enough for the city of New York, uh, and... Uh, Governor Cuomo is responsible for basically taking patients that had COVID-19 out of nursing homes and sticking them back in nursing homes and killing a bunch of old people. Like that's like that. That's literally what a Democrat, uh, you know, what Democrat leadership did in in the largest uh, city in the United States. And so uh, absolutely, I think it's ludicrous. I think that this idea, look, we're it's you know, we're, we're in September of 2020 in a presidential race. Everything. That Donald Trump does to this point. I mean, he could literally, uh, you know, jump into a river and save a bag of puppies and people would find something <laughs> wrong with what he does. And that's fine. I mean, it is what it is and that's expected. But here's the other side of the coin here. And this is what cracks me up about the whole thing is that you've got Mr. Bob Woodward, Mr. Deep Throat, you know, Mr. Nixon out there saying, oh, I've got this great big piece of news. And now, you know, this, you know, the the angry mob at least is not turned just to Donald Trump, but they're saying, hey, you know, what the heck, Bob Woodward, if you had this information back in February, why are you just now releasing it? Oh, well, yeah. it's because of book sales, number one. And then you've got Bob Woodward, who is like a, a freaking pull string. Uh, they say, well, well, why didn't you release it then? Well, you know, Dave, of course, his quote was, I wanted to know what the president knew and when the president knew it. This is like, this is the same thing as, like, I'm an Auburn fan. Chris Davis, he's the guy who took back the kick six against Alabama. That man will never have to buy a dinner in Auburn, Alabama for the rest of his life. Bob Woodward is still resting on his, what did the president know? When did the president know it? It's been years. And I just think it's hilarious that he used that again in this case when he clearly waited for book sales. That's that's the only yeah. reason he waited on this information. So it's just kind of funny and and of course, you know, liberals out there, they're the mobs angry, but everybody else is like, well, we we get it with Bob, it's fine, but the president should have done more with we all. Here's the other key that. that
0: I think we can't miss. Bob Woodward understood that was sell books, but here's what Bob Woodward also understood. It wasn't as big of a deal as a lot of people are making out making it out right now. He understands that. The government was reacting well, to this. I, I mean, he, he, you're,
1: you're right. He does under—he did understand that, but he's certainly not defending that now. He's basically no. saying, well, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, what, what he was saying was accurate. It, that's almost one of the dumbest things I've heard in a long time. Look, I think Bob Woodward is an incredible journalist, and he's obviously uh, had an incredible career. But to say, I just wanted to make sure what he was telling me was accurate. I mean, it wasn't like he was you know, saying he solved the Rubik's Cube in 30 seconds and you had to go verify that with someone. He's literally telling you point blank uh, in real time, this is what I feel. And then, you know, apparently saying something uh, opposite when he's out there in front of the media. So I don't know what he was fact checking. I think he was fact checking uh, how much more money he could make if he held off until uh, <laughs> uh, the election. So I just think it's disingenuous. Again, it's just the Democrats as a whole. Uh, it was damned. If you do damned, if you don't, I think the president handled it fine as far as how, you know, uh, how he, uh, conveyed this to, to the American people. Um, and for any Democrat that's going to blame president Trump for the number of deaths in this country is, is ludicrous. We, we all could have done a better job, right? I mean, this is something no one's ever dealt with. And so, yeah, sure. Hindsight. Yeah, we all could have done a better job, but don't blame the president for, the number of deaths in New York City or in, you know, uh, the San Francisco Bay area. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, and and so, you know, just I think it's just disingenuous that people need to
0: remember that. So here's a big question. What other journalist has ever had Robert Redford play him on the big screen? I'm just <laughs> saying.
3: Yeah. Come on. Well, man. I know
0: Look, yeah. Carl I really Bernstein know got Dustin Hoffman.
2: Right, and you know yeah. Bob Woodford, as JR pointed out, is mindful of, of the time in which he released this, and and people are mindful to, to Hollywood and who's going to play him on uh, the big screen. They just might want to watch the subject material if they want to be nominated for an Oscar. Now that they have changed the uh, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about that. that.
0: We got a, We got a break, and 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 Kirstie Alley. Holy cow! I mean, she pulled down the tweet, but her tweet was great. I loved it. I'll read it to everybody when we come back. Uh, best picture. Holy macro. Uh, not a good time to be an artist right now in America. 17 Mm. minutes till 7. J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Group and we got Seth Mays from the GOP with us. We'll talk a little culture with you when we come back on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, let's come back, finish up our final segment. Unbelievable. Final segment, guys, this morning with uh, J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Group, Seth Mays, uh, of course, from the uh, Arkansas GOP, and little culture wars for us. Uh, The uh, folks that set up the rules for... Uh, The uh, Oscar have changed the rules on best picture. This is reported yesterday in the Los Angeles Times. Wait till I read this to you. The standards require one of the following. Not that it'd be a good movie, okay? <laughs> That's not one of the standards. One of the standards is they require one of the following. At least one of the lead actors or significant sh- supporting actors is, un- is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. At least 30% of all actors in secondary and more minor roles are from certain underrepresented groups. Or the main storyline, theme, or narrative uh, is uh, centered on an underrepresented group. To be eligible for best picture, a film must meet at least two standards across four categories. On-screen representation, themes and narrative, creative leadership and project uh, team, industry access and opportunities, and audience development within each category or a variety of criteria. And they go, it goes on and on. Well, Kirstie Alley, uh, you know, from, you know, Star Trek, you remember from, from that. You remember from the movies with John Tavolta, Look Who's Talking. How about the and, – and Cheers, of course, on TV. In response to this blatant violation, uh, violation of artistic freedom – Kirstie Alley said the new rules are, quote, a disgrace to artists everywhere. This is a disgrace. This is her tweet now. This is a disgrace to artists everywhere. Can you imagine telling Picasso what had to be in his effing paintings? You people have lost your minds. Control artists. Control individual thought. And this is my favorite part of it. Oscar or well. That from uh, Kirstie Alley. Now, she deleted that tweet and then later wanted to clarify that she supports diversity and inclusion but opposes the mandating of it. Quote, I deleted my first tweet about the new rules for best movie Oscars because I feel it was a poor analogy and misrepresented my viewpoint. I don't think so. I think it was perfect. I am 100 percent behind diversity, inclusion and tolerance. I am opposed to mandated arbitrary percentages relating to hiring human beings in any business, she said. What do you—unbelievable, guys. What do you think about this? This is the cancel
2: culture gone
0: absolutely back guano.
2: Well, one of the key points you had read there, Dave, of the four categories you have to meet, they mention on-screen representation, themes, and narratives. Themes and narratives. So what does that mean? If you throw that in the translation machine, that means you may get a Best Picture nomination for the subject that you are covering. As you said at the beginning, whether it's good or not, but controlling exactly what the point of the movie is could be a deciding factor as to whether you're nominated uh, or not. And when you read through these quotas, it sort of reads like this was approved by the CCP, like the Chinese Communist Party had a hand in writing this. This is something that you would see in a country like that that wanted to control thought and expression. It's just wild that having nothing to do with the actors, with their performances, with the cinematography, uh, anything to do with really uh, what the film is presenting, But it can solely be decided on the theme of the movie, and if the theme is woke enough uh, by the Academy to be whether or not it receives a nomination for Best Picture. Again, as you said, nothing to do with whether the movie is good or not, (laughs) but solely what it focuses on.
0: That's right. Well, we've seen that happen in the past. I mean, there's, there's people who've gotten Oscars because of the movie that they were in because it yep. it talked about certain themes. I mean, maybe it yeah. it was pro-abortion or whatever. Go ahead, Jr. Well, no, I mean, you're exactly
1: right. I mean, this isn't new with Hollywood. They're not just putting it on paper. I mean, there have been movies that have done terribly at the box office. Uh, people never watched it. They end up winning the best picture. And that's fine. It is whatever. If it's about, you know, right, your expression of art, and you're saying that this movie was, was the best of the year based off of, you know, the way it was shot and the script and the screenplay. That's fine. That's not what they're doing anymore though. I mean, my biggest issue with this whole thing is the point the A three, this is in the article. This is exactly it says, the main storyline and the subject matter of the film must be centered on an underrepresented group so it so the theme and storyline of a movie has to be about women, racial or ethnic groups, the LGBTQ+ plus community, or people with cognitive or physical disabilities who are deaf or hard of hearing. So going forward, according to the you know American Motion uh, whatever Motion Picture Association or whatever, they're saying that here, if you want to be nominated for best picture, your narrative, your theme, your storyline must be based on one of these four things.
0: This is Talk censorship. About-
2: uh, this is unbelievably.
0: Censorship.
1: Well, I mean, when you look back, Dave, just at the last few movies, I mean, look, this last year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that was a really good movie. Quentin yeah. Tarantino. Did that meet the requirements? No. No. It didn't. Uh, Joker? Jojo Rabbit? The Irishman? I mean, not, not again, based on this criteria. I mean, this is unbelievably. Uh, a Star is Born? Remember that with, with Lady Gaga and... and, and uh, Bradley Cooper, that wouldn't meet it. I mean, so you go back just in the last two, three years, uh, you know, movie after movie would not meet this threshold. So now you're saying that every major movie that comes out of Hollywood that wants to be considered for best picture has to meet one of these four narratives. Uh, as far as, as the actual subject goes, I just think that I mean, just look, regardless of your politics and what you feel and, you know, the uh, Oscar Orwell, which I love that line, regardless of any of that, that's, <laughs> that's just really ridiculous. Like, this is absolutely just ridiculous. It makes no sense. It hamstrings uh, uh, every creative thought out there in Hollywood for, you know, someone who's who's, you know, going out to L.A., Dave, to to make a movie that they've written and. And worked hard on. Now it has to meet certain criteria even to get a look. I just think it's just one of the dumbest things Hollywood has done in a while, and that is saying a lot.
0: Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I'm I'm going to be interested to hear from some of the great directors like Scorsese and Spielberg yeah. and, and uh, Christopher Nolan and some other folks. You know what they think about this. Uh, let's let's so face it? it, you know.
1: Yeah, where does Avatar fall into the? uh... Yes, (laughs) like I I mean, like just movie after movie after movie of nuts.
0: Well, you know, Avatar falls perfectly into this because it's about an alien race. (laughs) There you go, and it's anti-American and anti-military. I mean, uh, for those two, those three reasons, it in all they they're going to keep on doing this. I just I when I when I read this, I just thought, you know, I think Hollywood jumped the shark. I really do on this one. I want to I, see, I really they're... want to see if, if some of the big directors uh, push back on this.
1: It's kind of like the same thing with like, you know, the Democratic Party. There's just it, this to me just underscores how many factions there are in the Democratic Party and how fractured uh, uh, the party really is. I mean, you go to yep. the DNC and it's all kumbaya. We're all together. Uh, but man, it is so broken and there are so many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, it's just, it's, they're in bad shape. And this is just a complete overreaction to try to appease
0: everyone. And you're never going to do that. Hey, I've, yep. I've kind of taken over the conversation a little bit. This last segment, Seth, anything else you want to add
2: to this thing about Hollywood? You know, I think you're right. I think you you definitely will see a lot of pushback uh, from directors for all the reasons Jr. mentioned. The movies that wouldn't meet that, you think Avatar, you think really any science fiction movie, Star Wars or or anything that has an alien race. What about The Simpsons? They're yellow. You know, if they make a movie, could they be considered? (laughs) So I I think you'll definitely see some pushback. And as Jr. said, it is one of the most ridiculous things we've seen out of Hollywood. And, Dave, that takes a lot of real estate into consideration, a statement like that.
0: I I really agree with you. All right. Seth Mays from New York South GOP, J.R. Davis. Guys, I'm going to let you sleep in next week because uh, Robert (laughs) Steinbach will be filling in for me while I'm on vacation. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right?
1: All right. Thanks, Dave.
0: Have a good one. All right. i got to get out of here. Robert Steinbach is coming on for me uh, because i got to go see my doc. Hopefully the last time I got to see him in a while. And then uh, I'll be back tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. right here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Don't go anywhere.
3: Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. It is, let's see, what time is it, Heidi? It's 7.06. Heidi's going to help me out today, uh, telling you the time, the weather, and the breaks, because I'm barely competent enough to be talking about the topics uh, over which we speak or about which we speak, so any other mechanical or intellectual efforts on my part would be for naught. So Heidi, thanks in advance uh, for helping us out uh, today. Uh, you know I can use it all that I can get. Folks, what is the topic of the day? And by that I don't mean today. What is being talked about in mainstream media, in universities, in coffee shops, etc., every day right now? Race. We know that. That's actually not in dispute between the left and the right. What's in dispute is whether conservatives are allowed to talk about the issue of race. You see, what has happened historically since, I don't know, maybe the early 80s is my guess, is that conservatives have been cowed by leftist propaganda that have painted conservatives as racists. And so conservatives have been generally unwilling to speak up on issues of race. Now that's an exaggeration. We've had examples of conservatives speaking up on race throughout this time period. But if you look at conservative politicians during this time, they didn't say much about issues of race. If you watch, by analogy, if you watch this interesting docudrama about Phyllis Schlafly, uh, and she was on the women's rights uh, issue from a conserv- conservative perspective, she uh, campaigned against the Equal Rights Amendment, and that amendment failed. And then when Reagan and she had communicated with Reagan before he was elected, however, when he was elected, he did not appoint her uh, to a position according to the docudrama, which I think is accurate because she was polarizing. She took a very strong stand against the equal rights amendment. And so, and it was defeated. And so in, in the movie, in the series president Reagan calls and says, listen, I really appreciate all the hard work you did for the conservative movement, but I can't appoint you to something right now because you're too hot. You're too controversial. You're hot, not meaning this kind of slightly disparaging, you know, sexual statement, meaning hot is in terms of terms of topic. And so she was sidelined and conservatives have unfortunately followed that paradigm since then, remember, that was literally the early 80s. So what happens next? Well, then conservatives say, if I want to be active in bringing about change, I'm not going to be successful if I, if I focus on issues that are not going to get me appointed to the next position or uh, give me a platform from which to speak. And so conservatives have been cowed on the issue of race. Now we've seen a a dramatic turnaround in that issue through President Trump and others around him who have said, we're gonna speak to these issues and we are going to espouse the conservative line on race. And that is a dramatic shift. Now, of course, the response from the left is what the response from the left has always been racist racist because the definition of racist for the left includes it's not only to be fair to be fair to uh those on the left but it includes a conservative speaking about the issue of race that's it if you're a conservative and you speak about the issue of race you're a racist and nobody likes to be called a racist it's a terrible thing to be called in fact i wrote an article. In a legal journal, that's what law professors do. Academics have to write long articles. They're they're small books or they're like book chapters. They're 50 pages long for legal academics. And that's part of our job. By the way, if you want to go and evaluate the quality of legal professors, go look at how many articles they've published. If it's not a lot, they're not a good law professor, period. Well, I'm a good teacher, some might say. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not, but you're not a good legal academic because a legal academic does three things. Teaches, writes these articles we're talking about, and then does public service, some of which is what I'm doing right here by speaking with you all. So the notion of being called a racist is a terrible thing. And conservatives have been bullied about this, by this, I should say. Bullied by those on the left. And the beauty of the bullying tactic by those on the left is they bully the conservatives and then claim they're being bullied. Isn't that remarkable? And so the, the, the liberals claim they're the only ones who are able to label someone a racist. They're the only ones who are la- able to label someone a bully. And guess what they do? They engage in racism, not all of them, To be clear, not all of them, but some of them engage in racism, but feel they are protected because they wear the banner of liberalism and feel that they can accuse any conservative who wears the banner of conservatism of being a racist per se, which is obviously false. And then when the conservative speaks up, they bully the conservative all the time saying, you're bullying me. You got to give me some credit, folks. You've got to give them some credit from, for creating an entirely internally consistent delusion that they are able to spread throughout the population because it has taken hold. It has not won, but it has absolutely taken hold. And this is the tragedy of what is going on in society today. Where does it stem from? Where does it stem from? From Academia. From Academia. 40 years ago, again I'm I'm positing the beginning roughly in the 80s. 40 years ago, this was a nascent and nascent, two different words, idea that came out of this movement that basically looked at everything in society through a racial lens. Everything is racial. People are arrested just because of their race. People are convicted just because of their race. People go to jail for longer sentences just because of their race. Of course, that all of that is untrue. But those were the claims of this critical race movement and those claims started in academia, and now they have permeated out through society. Why? Because they, all their students are now adults out in the world taking their baggage, taking their Marxist ideology. Oh, there you go again, Rob. You're saying, you're saying what you do if you don't like someone you call them a Marxist? No, no. I call racists, racists. I call people who are ignorant, ignorant, and I call Marxists, Marxists. Well, why do I call this ideology Marxist? It's actually a modification of Marxism. Let me be fair. It's not exactly Marxism. It's worse than Marxism, and it's slightly different than Marxism. Excuse me, folks. Marxism divided up society by class. Well, those with the capital, by the way, that means money. Those with the capital, they're evil, and they exploit the worker. By the way, how do capitalists exploit the workers? By hiring them and paying them. That's how they Oh, they're not paying them enough. Okay, well, you can go to another job. Well, there aren't any other jobs that are paying well. Really. Really? Doctors don't make good money, lawyers don't make good money, plenty of others, by the way. Okay. Every well, why did you become well, well well the worker doesn't have enough money to become the capitalist and start his own business? Oh, because all of these businesses that we know of were started by people who inherited their wealth, right? Wait, no? Steve Jobs didn't inherit his wealth? Oh, uh, Bill Gates didn't inherit his wealth? Oh, um, the the Facebook kid didn't inherit his wealth? Mm. Oh, well, maybe these models don't work as well of the left as we thought they would. So Marxism focuses entirely on, or essentially on class, the new Marxism, the Marxism of the Democratic Party today, the Marxism of American left today, the Marxism of what they themselves call progressiveness, is instead of focusing on wealth, they focus on race. But all is determined. Everything in the world, everything in society is determined by wealth, says the left, says the new Marxism. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this topic. Heidi, is it time for us to take a break already? Heidi, are you I may have lost Heidi for a moment here. So, folks, I will continue talking, and hopefully Heidi will uh, join us back on the feed. Um, so, the left has this idea that it's all about race. And they want to teach you thereafter that unless you have the Accepted ideology on race, you're wrong. You're evil. And wait for it, folks, wait for it, and you're a racist. That's how this false equation is set up by the left. It's very convenient. You can't be right because you believe in conservative principles. You can't be right because you believe that the best approach to racism, which does exist, is to not discriminate. Chief Justice Roberts quite famously wrote, uh, the best way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating. It's not a particularly controversial topic unless you talk to somebody from the left. But if you talk to somebody uh, from the left, what will they tell you? Oh, no, 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 no. There's only one kind of discrimination. What kind of discrimination is that? That's a discrimination by whites, essentially, against minorities. Some minorities, by the way. Not all minorities. Some minorities. Why do I say that? It's something we're going to talk about later in the show today, in fact. Because Asians are discriminated against in college admissions. Well, oh, is that just are discre- minorities? I don't know what the percentage offhand of Asians in America are. I'm guessing it's in the three to 5% range. I'll, I'll try to look that up during one of the breaks
4: and, and discriminate again. And in fact, yeah. Robert, let's uh, you can look that information up now. Let's take our break. It is almost 7:20 in the morning. We got traffic, we got news. It's all coming up right here on the Dave Elswick show. Don't go anywhere.
3: This is the Dave Elswick show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today for the latter part of the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were talking About how we're talking about race in America, first of all, from a conservative perspective. We're going to do it. We're allowed to do it. We're allowed to have an opinion. That's what the First Amendment is about. That's what the left wants to prevent. Wants to prevent you from thinking your conservative thoughts, from saying your conservative ideas. The left wants to be able to fire you, literally, for saying things on your Facebook if you work for the government while you're at home. If they find that, well, we find those comments disruptive, if you say if someone were to read those, what? If you're at home in your footsie pajamas and you write something on Facebook at night and you work for the government, they should be able to fire you for that? And the left, that's what the left wants. The left testified to that effect on a bill that was introduced into the Arkansas legislature last session. It didn't uh, go through. It will this time, if I have anything to say about it. That bill will be introduced, and we will push ahead on that bill, and we will watch each and every liberal and conservative legislator to see how they vote on whether or not public employees have the right to free speech on their own time. People say, well, know. well that's already protected by the First Amendment. First of all, wrong. Wrong. I'm sick and tired of a bunch of backbenchers telling me what the First Amendment protects. Now, if your argument is it should be protected by the First Amendment, I agree with you. But I don't care what should be is. I'm telling you what is. The Supreme Court has said that's not protected by the First Amendment. If the, if the government entity determines, well, that's, that's too disruptive, and the court, the court says, well, you know, we could see how there's some disruptive effect. Out you go. Well, here's the thing. I don't care if it's disruptive. Your free thoughts and free speech on your own time, however disruptive they may be to some mid-level leftist bureaucrat, I don't care. And you don't care. Because that's what freedom of speech and freedom of thought are actually about. So has the interpretation of the First Amendment been butchered by the Supreme Court? by, amongst others, conservatives or so-called conservatives? You betcha. Absolutely. But we see some changes. Last week, the Office of Management and Budget, now that's the office basically that hands out money uh, within the executive branch. Department of Labor, Department of Commerce, Department of Justice, they are controlled, not entirely, but often by the Office of Management and Budget, because they're the folks that give out money for buildings and give out money for training and all sorts of activities. So they are the filter by which these other executive branch entities operate as a practical matter, because nothing happens without the big bucks or even the small bucks. And they put out, uh, the director, his, apparently his name is Russell Voigt. meaning I didn't know who he was before, and doesn't matter. Russell Voigt put out a memorandum last week. Uh, let me read you part of that memorandum, and then we're going to discuss that. We're going to take a break, as we always do, by the way, uh, shortly at the bottom of the hour. So I'm going to start reading this. Heidi's going to interject uh, when the break comes on, because as I said Uh, When I uh, took over today's show for Dave, uh, I'm barely capable of talking to you, no less monitoring the time. So Russell Voigt writes this memorandum, and he's speaking directly and specifically to the issue of paying for training of government employees. Because if you're a government employee, very often, and this is a good thing, by the way, the government brings in private contractors, private individuals to provide training. They don't, the government doesn't do all of its training in-house. And that's actually a good thing. Why? Because you don't want that kind of insular um, approach to learning where the only thing you hear is from other government bureaucrats. You want outsiders to come in and provide training as well. Now, mind you, of course, government bureaucrats are the one that filter the hiring of the outsiders. So, There still is this funneling effect to reinforce the bureaucracy, but nonetheless, it's better than a totally incestuous intellectual environment. The totally incestuous uh, incestuous intellectual
4: environment is... All right. All right, Robert, let's stop there. Um, Rush Limbaugh is just about to come up. We we have to hear what he has to say. We also got weather and traffic. And then we will be back with Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave on the Dave Elswick show.
3: So I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave, as you likely know already. We've been talking about race issues this morning because as conservatives, we are Stepping forward and saying, We can talk about any issue. We can talk about those issues that the conservatives, unfortunately, have been bullied on for too many years, and we can offer the conservative perspective on it. You don't have to agree. But we will no longer be cowed, as too many conservatives have been, from having that conversation. We will share the conservative view, which incidentally is racism is bad. And racism of all types is bad. Period. It's a remarkably simple notion. Conservative ideology is generally simple. Oh, you say, Rob, conservative ideology is simple because conservatives aren't bright enough. No, no, because academics know how to make things complex in a way that is not helpful. And then that permeates out to the left. And so the left have these contorted ideologies that are nonsense. The fact is, we know from the notion of Oakham's razor that the most simple explanation is usually the right one. And conservative ideology presents simple concepts that work in reality racism is bad period not well this form of racism is okay you see because that's not racism because only racism only works in one direction if you put an arrow and you draw a chart and then you have a graph and then within the graph there's a table and then within the table there are elements and then the factors and then you multiply no no racism is bad that's it that's it That's a conservative ideology. And that, my friends, is exactly what the director of the Office of Management and Budget wrote in this memo. So let's take a look at this memo. The director writes, it's come to uh, the president's attention that executive branch agencies, as I referred to uh, before the break, have spent millions of taxpayer dollars. That's the first thing to focus on here. These are your. This is your money, folks. On so-called training, it puts in quote training to believe in divisive anti-American propaganda. Well, what's he talking about? He says, for example, according to press reports, employees across the executive branch have been required to attend trainings that. Uh, Where, rather, they are told that, quote, virtually all white people contribute to racism, end quote, or where they are required to say that they, quote, benefit from racism, end quote. So first and foremost, the claim that virtually all white people contribute to racism, that is a false claim. That is that is a lie. Virtually all white people do not contribute to racism. And in fact. I'm more than confident in saying that well over, well over the majority of white people not only do not contribute to racism, they are also not racist. Uh, Maybe I should say that in the reverse order. I don't think it much matters one way or the other. In other words, the vast majority of white people are not racist. The vast majority of any people, by the way, any race are not racist. Well, we can only talk about white people when when we're talking about racism, because only white people can commit racism. Oh, wrong. Wrong. This is another one of these uh, trans, uh, transmorphication. I don't know if that's a word, by the way, folks, uh, that the left has done to reality and to language. So what is racism? It's when someone uses race, in a negative way to, uh, or well, let me rephrase it. That's true, but let me say it in a broader way. When someone uses race as a measure of merit, of quality, because it's not, right? Your race doesn't matter on whether you're a good person, a a bad person, you're a capable person, not a capable person. No, that doesn't matter. It's not caused by your race. Now, let's be clear: there are certain attributes of different races that make that can benefit members of those race, races. So, for example, um, uh, uh, Northern Europeans tend to be taller than than Southern Europeans, right? We know that the the Norwegians tend to be tall, not all of them, but that factor, that characteristic is linked to their race, is it race or sub-race? I don't know if it's a race or or their their, um, nationality. Now, where the border sits doesn't matter, but the Norwegian people are a people, are a population. Race refers to a broad population. That's all it refers to, folks. So we know that Norwegians tend to be tall. Well, if height is a a benefit in some capacity, well, then there is a, a benefit to having Norwegian heritage. But of course, what we're looking at there is the height. So if you find someone from Spain who's tall, you don't care that they're from Spain, meaning Southern Europe. So there is this linkage uh, with uh, population, but it's not that the race is dispositive, it's that some other factor is linked to race, like red hair and freckles. So if you're looking for a red-haired model, you'll probably get a lot of folks with freckles. But you're not looking for the freckles or vice versa. I diverge from this memo, needless to say, because I am pointing out the notion that racism can be affected by any group against a different group. Based on race, you can have other forms of discrimination, by the way. We don't call the discrimination against women, for example, sexism. Uh, racism, We call it sexism. By the way, if you had a group of women who were discriminating against men, that's sexism as well. Oh, no, you're you can only go one. Day. No, it can't. No, it can't. And in fact, the law recognizes that the law says that if you discriminate against a man because he's a man, that's sexism. If you dis- discriminate against a black person, a white person, an Asian person. Based on their race, that's racism. So, again, the left tries to manipulate language when the clear, simple, right? That's what I talked about at the beginning of this segment. Simple explanation is that discriminating based upon race, no matter what the race is, is racism. And that's what the director of the Office of Management and Budget is seeking to root out. We as taxpayers should not be spending taxpayer dollars to tell white people that they're racists when they are overwhelmingly not. And when, yes, yes, there are some people who are racist, uh, white people who are racist, Asian people who are racist, black people who are racist. You pick the group and there are some of them are going to be racist, but from every group, folks. Not necessarily the same percentages. I have no idea, by the way. But the notion that only white people are committing racism, that's leftist propaganda. That's all it is. And that ties into this notion of critical race theory. Critical race theory only looks at racism from one direction. And so the letter goes on to say, according to press reports, in some cases, these trainings have further claimed that there is racism embedded in the belief that America is the land of opportunity or the belief that the most qualified person should re- receive a job. The notion, folks, of a meritocracy, that merit should be the prevailing characteristic set that determines whether you get a job, whether you get into college, whether you get into law school, Is under attack from the left. Now, one of the attacks by the left is, well, you see, Rob, uh, um, uh, colleges let in people who uh, who are not meritorious when it comes to academia. They're meritorious uh, due to uh, sports. They let in athletes. Or colleges are obviously uh, are letting people who are relatives of uh, big donors or people who graduated from, you know, the sons and daughters of those who graduated from that same college previously. That's not merit. They're right. That is an absolutely true statement. That is a statement by the left. That is absolutely true. Merit, when it comes to academia, is not measured by proficiency in sports. I have no problem if schools want to have sports, but if schools want to maintain academic environments and say, as they do, to be clear, that they admit folks based on merit, well, then how good or bad they are at sports is not a factor. Sorry. And I played sports in college. I was not a starting player in any event, but I played sports and I enjoyed it. If you want to say, look, we have two candidates who are of equivalent academic credentials. We will let in the sports person because he's more well-rounded. That's okay, because you started out with the merit, and then on top of the merit, this person had a plus factor. That's okay. And by the way, that's why I'm okay with the notion that if you want to say that affirmative action is what it started out as being, what it was supposed to be, and what it's not today, folks. That is, well, you have two roughly equivalent folks, and then you have someone who's from a minority group, so we give them a little plus factor. Okay. We call that a thumb on the scale. Okay. But that has no resemblance to what goes on under the guise of affirmative action today. Affirmative action today, for the most part, for the vast most part, can I say that? For the vast majority affirmative action is dramatic and overwhelming advantages given to people based on their race. Now, let me be clear, flip that around. doesn't mean that everyone who's of a, of a select few chosen minority race is let in based on that program because, of course, there are people from these select few chosen minority groups who get in on, on merit. The general population can't decipher which is which or who is who without looking at the data. But certainly there are members of the chosen select few sub-minority or minority groups or select minority groups that get in uh, based on merit. And then large numbers who get in based on race-based admissions, where race becomes the overwhelming factor. In determining admissions so that the head of OPM is criticizing is that there's no such thing as merit because that is one of the mantras of the new left by the way, I've heard about that. You know, I go to conferences, and I'm in academia right now, and I've heard people say, well, you know, you should be looking at these admission scores. Say if you take the SATs to go to college, or you take the one for law school, well, those scores, you know, those, are, those aren't any good. Well, why does your school use those scores? Well, you say, well, we, we use them because we know how to use them, but nobody else knows how to use them, and no score... To-. Wait, so the scores aren't any good, but you can... do. Why don't you do this? When your school gets rid of using scores for admissions, by the way, that's the move the left is trying to achieve. But when your school gets rid of admission scores, then come tell me about them. Till then, stop being a hypocrite.
4: All right. I think that's probably a good time to uh, to take a break and we can think about uh, what Robert Steinbuck has been talking about concerning um, affirmative action. Uh, we'll be right back we have some traffic to get to it is 7:49 in the morning Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick show
3: this is the Dave Ellswick show I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave We have only a few more minutes that I am going to be speaking with you all this morning. We end, of course, at the top of the hour. You can hear the continuation of this conversation. I will be back on the radio this evening at 6 p.m., as Dave is always back on at 6 to 7. And incidentally, Dave is taking a well-deserved vacation next week, and I will be filling in for him uh, all of next week, uh, both during the morning show uh, from uh, 6 uh, to 8 a.m., and then, of course, the 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. last hour of the show. So listen tonight, folks, for the continuation of the conversation we're having. And, of course, you regularly listen to Dave. Continue to do so. And tune in for me if you will be so gracious uh, come next week because I will be covering for Dave. It is the first time, incidentally, that I will be filling in for Dave for an entire week. Let's see if I can do it. Every time I fill in for Dave for a day or two, I write him and I say, how amazing. I am, that he is able to do this on a daily basis. So we'll see whether at the end of that marathon, I'm still standing. We're talking about race in America. We're talking about conservative ideology on race, which is simple, straightforward and morally correct. That is race doesn't matter. You don't choose someone based on race for any purpose. Race we can observe, We know we can see differences amongst us. We should celebrate those differences, by the way. They're enjoyable, they're interesting, they're exciting, but they are not a merit-based factor. And so when it comes to those aspects of life in which merit is useful, well, the race should not be a factor. It's that simple. But it creates, uh, race exists, of course, now the, the left sometimes the left says, "Well, race is a is a construct. It's created." Okay, that's actually not entirely wrong, right? What we call race is a set of factors. But as I sort of alluded to earlier, the difference between Northern Europeans and Southern Europeans is actually a difference of population, not a difference what we call race. Okay. Race is just a broad, the, the broadest definition of a population, incidentally. But you don't have to use the term race. That's okay. But nonetheless, we recognize that what we now call Asians look different than what we call Europeans, than what we call um, those who uh, are from Africa or descendants of those from Africa. So we generally use the term race. But you don't have to use race. That's okay. Okay. To the extent that people suggest, well, if you use the term racist, it suggests it's more important. I don't know. I mean, I don't care. You can call it something else. Call it differences. Okay. But do you think if you went over to China or Japan or Korea, by the way, very different cultures, very different histories, and would identify themselves overall as very different peoples? Nonetheless, all Asian. And by the way, I'm not saying they all look alike, because that's the common trap of the left. But do you think there are common physical traits? Well, of course there are. Of course there are. If you don't see that, oh, well, you know, to you know, say that, Rob. You're not allowed to say the Chinese look, uh, have common, not, well, yes. In, in, in some respects, Chinese have similar appearance uh, uh, to uh, Japanese or to Koreans. Yeah, absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. Straight black hair, for example. That's right. I don't have straight black hair. Why? In large measure, because I'm not Asian. Are there are there whites who have straight? But sure, it's not it's not the it's not the majority. It's probably not common. So this whole discussion about race, and I think we're probably going to end on this. So we'll pick it up. Uh, When we come uh, on the six o'clock hour, tune in for the continuation, by the way, of the discussion of the Office of Management and Budget letter seeking to eliminate teaching racism seem seeking to do away with that but what we're talking about in these last few moments is a very simple notion that whether we call it race or something else there are physical differences amongst very broad populations and let's in the stop world. right
4: there let's stop Great. right there robert uh we will see you guys at 6 p.m tonight don't go anywhere this is the dave Elswick show
3: show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave at this 6 to 7 p.m. hour. Folks, did you listen to me this morning? If you didn't, you missed a bunch of good stuff, but we'll cover some of that ground as we expand on our discussion today. Let me remind you, folks, because I keep forgetting to do so to the extent that you are on Twitter, or as I like to call it, the Twittergram. uh, Sign up to be a follower of mine. I've got four and a half followers right now. I'm looking for 6 uh, I can be found at at Rob Steinbuck, all one word, at Rob Steinbuck, R-O-B-S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H. Uh, so find me on the Twittergram. Uh, it's the only one of the social medias uh, that I'm on because it's, even that is a challenge for me. Folks, we were talking this morning about the intersection of conservative ideology conservative thought and issues of race. Uh, I ended this morning's show talking about what is, what does the term race mean? Because uh, some on the left criticized the use of the term race as not being a real thing. And I said, fine, you don't have to call it race. Race refers to a large population. And so uh, I had spoken this morning about um, uh, the differences amongst Northern Europeans and Southern Europeans in terms of height, in general, Northern Europeans are um, taller than Southern Europeans, and that's not exactly a racial difference, because we tend to consider them all as being European, which we tend to, as a racial construct, we often, uh, we'll often say white or Caucasian. So it's some subpopulation, if the, if the broadest population is the construct of race. It doesn't matter. We're talking about large groups of people. So if the largest one is race, or if you don't want to call the largest one race, call it the largest one. And then you can call other ones a a smaller population. Sure. No problem. And so we're talking about there are differences amongst population. And I said the perhaps obvious but sometimes controversial claim amongst the left but I recognize that there are physical differences amongst what we generally call races. So there are physical difference, differences, say, between whites and Asians, even though Asians are made up of very distinct, very separate groups in many respects. Koreans have very different culture and history than Japanese, than Chinese, and that we group them all together under the racial category of Asian. Why? because they have common physical characteristics. So is that a real thing? Well, it's real enough because we can see it. Is it a moral difference? Of course not. Is it a merit-based difference? Of course not. We shouldn't be choosing people who are Asian over whites or vice versa for admission to school, for hiring jobs, etc., because they happen to have long, straight, maybe not long, but straight black hair? No. But do we recognize, oh, well, that student has straight black hair and other characteristics, so that student is, let's say, in this hypothetical Asian. Can you see that difference? Okay, sure. By the way, all of that is somewhat impermissible speech amongst the far left. I remember asking a leftist once. He, he went to a sleep doctor and I said, oh, you know, who, who did you use for sleep doctor? I was considering going to a sleep doctor. Oh, I was doctor so-and-so. And it was an unusual name. Uh, I don't remember it now. I said, oh, that's an unusual name. Uh, what? Uh, where's he from? Do you know? And by that, I didn't mean this. He may have been fifth generation American, but I meant sort of what is his heritage? So be it race or subgroup, meaning uh, uh, he's Norwegian, which is within the category of race. And this, this leftists became fostered. Well, uh, you're, no, I, I don't know. I, I, how would I know? Well, I don't know. You you met the person. did you? Were you able to tell or did you have a conversation with the person? By the way, I wouldn't choose or not choose the doctor based on that. I was just asking a question out of curiosity. I had once I worked with a fellow who was an expert witness on a case that I was dealing uh, that I was handling. I forget his last name, but it was something like, uh, well, of course, the famous uh, uh, American Indian name, like crazy horse. It wasn't crazy horse, but it was something like that. And uh, when someone recommended him to me as being an outstanding expert witness, I said, oh, you know, Mr. Crazy Horse. Like I said, I'm making up that name because I can't remember exactly the name. Uh, I recommend this expert witness who's an academic at such and such school, uh, Mr. Crazy Horse. And I said, oh. Very interesting. is is he an American Indian? Not by the way, because I would hire him or not hire him because he's an American Indian, because that's interesting. That's what. that's it. Because I can recognize reality. That's interesting. And uh the person that person was not a, a, a crazy leftist who was afraid to answer the question and said, "I don't know, actually I, I haven't asked him. Um, so uh when I met him. Uh, And after we got to know each other, he was hired already and this kind of thing. Um, I said, oh, you know, I've always meant to ask her. I forgot It's a fascinating name. Uh, Do you have American? Are you American Indian or part American Indian? And sure enough, he was. And the name was of American Indian heritage. And I asked him about his family. And that's why it's interesting. Why? because it starts in a conversation about one's heritage, and it's always interesting to learn about different heritages. I have 0% American Indian in my um, genealogy, and I haven't done one of those tests. Uh, I know it because I'm first-generation American. So uh, unless some somebody with American Indian heritage flew over to Eastern Europe and uh, intermixed <clears throat> with someone from my family— which seems overwhelmingly unlikely, I have no American Indian. So it's even more interesting to me because I have zero personal familiarity uh, from a family standpoint with that. So that's why race can be an interesting conversation, uh, a, a way to bring us together, because I can offer insights about my race to other people. Other people could bring insights about their race to me. And by insights, I simply mean different historical Upbringing, because race obviously—I'm allowed to say that—race obviously relates to culture, and then subcategories uh, within race. There's an open question, well, amongst at least some, whether being Jewish is race or just a religion. Uh, I think it's both, uh, and in any event, I discuss all the time on this show and elsewhere my cultural upbringing as a Jew. And I have had nothing but warm reception, by the way, in Arkansas from folks when I bring up the topic because Arkansas has a small Jewish population, and so when I talk about it, I often find people interested in having that discussion. Not, by the way, in academia. Not in academia. I have found no one particularly interested in it. Uh, That's the irony. But amongst the general population, very interested. Amongst Evangelical Christians even more interest because there's a kinship, albeit obviously the highly disparate uh, religions. Well, I highly disparate might be an exaggeration because of course uh, Evangelical Chris- Christianity builds on Judaism. Uh, all of Christianity does, but the Evangelicals uh, perhaps uh, have an even greater dedication towards that connection than at least some other groups within Christianity. I'm no expert. I'm, whether I'm an expert on Judaism or not uh, remains to be seen, but I'm certainly not an expert on Christianity. So I offer that conversation up. So this is all by way of a very long winded background, folks, to say we're talking about race and it, it intersects with religion. It intersects with culture And it intersects our lives often, and we should be happy to deal with that intersection in a positive way. And this morning I was talking about this letter from the head of the Office of of, um, Management and Budget, rather, to all the government agencies within the executive branch that says, don't spend money on false and divisive racist Um, training, so-called training, indoctrination, folks, leftist indoctrination. And so the letter itself goes on to say, these types of, and this is my term, racist indoctrination, trainings not only run counter to the fundamental beliefs for which our nation has stood since its inception, but they also engender division and resentment within the federal workforce. We can be proud, says the letter, that as an employer, the federal government has employees of all races, ethnicities, and religions. We can be proud that Americans from all over the country seek to join our workforce and dedicate themselves to public service. We can be proud of our continued efforts to welcome all individuals who seek to serve their fellow Americans as federal employees. However, we cannot except our employees receiving training that seeks to undercut our core values as Americans and drive division within our workforce. That's what's happening, right? These notions of, whoa, oh, whites, I'm going to the top of the letter that apparently quotes one of these trainings. that says, virtually all white people contribute to racism. No, that is a fundamentally false statement, folks. And we as conservatives will not be bullied, whether or not we're white conservatives, black conservatives, Asian conservatives, straight conservatives, gay conservatives, doesn't matter. We will not be bullied into blaming any group, any racial group, any uh, sex group, any sexual orientation group, any ethnic group for the for the ills of society. We will not blame the groups. We will blame individuals who do wrong. So, if you engage in racism you're wrong. If you engage in sexism you're wrong. If you engage in anti gay bias, you're wrong and I' this issue for just a moment, folks, because let me be clear, if you are a religious conservative and you believe that the Bible prohibits gay behavior, that's your a legal and moral right to do so. But that does not mean that you're entitled to treat a gay person uh, in in a bad way. We are taught to love all of mankind. And so if someone's gay and you meet that person, And you disagree. You you think that person is doing something wrong by engaging uh, by being gay or and or engaging in a gay lifestyle. I use both terminologies because it kind of crosses the divide of the of the language that's used in that context. Uh, You're free to believe that. But you're not free to treat that person with disrespect. You're not free to discriminate at a moral level and typically at a legal level, by the way, as well, uh, 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 to discriminate against that person. Sorry, that's not what the teachings of the Bible are. So I bring that up for the moral perspective, because, uh, of course, the majority moral perspective in society today is religious and good. I've got no problem with that. So I think it's important, particularly as a conservative, when we speak about these issues, to highlight that, because there has been some... Uh, um, less than charitable behavior, less than biblical behavior. Is that the right way to say that? Uh, I know that in Christianity, it's aptly said, what will Jesus do? Less than that type of behavior when we're dealing, uh, uh, when some people deal with gay folks. And I think we need to be on guard for that. Now, as you know, the acting head of the it's dni uh that's the sort of we used to have that the head of the cia but now there's somebody above the cia the acting head of the cia or the acting head of the dni rather is gay i don't care one way or the other but it's but the left by the way doesn't celebrate that you know the greatest thing happens every time the left appoints somebody for the as a first barack obama was the first black president yes indeed Indeed, I think it speaks well of America, by the way, that America voted uh, for a black man, irrespective of his race. Yes, that's wonderful. But when the the, the highest person in the intelligence community happens to be gay, I don't think it matters one way or another... Do you see the left celebrating? No, folks. Why? Because the left celebrates identity politics when it also intersects with identity, excuse me, with liberalism, with progressivism, with leftism. But if you are conservative and you happen to be the first of some identity politics, irrelevant. Who? What? Where? We don't care. We don't care. Of course, uh, if you look at the Supreme Court, uh, Thomas is not the first a black man on uh, the supreme court but he's the only black man on the supreme court is that celebrated by the left No, because his conservative ideology cancels his uh, identity politics virtue according to the left
4: All i don't right to robert po- this yes, this sir. would probably be a good time to take a break we will be back oh, yeah. this is the dave elswick show 6 p.m. hour on 101.1 fm the answer
3: This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck. In this evening hour, filling in for Dave, as you know, my voice is not exactly the same as his. We have been talking about issues of race and conservatism in America today on Dave's show. I have been discussing the letter from the Office of Management and Budget seeking to eliminate the teaching of racist Ideology. It's not called that, but it's essentially the teaching of racist ideology by outside trainers to government agencies. And so I'm going to continue now reading from the letter. Uh, the president has directed me, the, that is the director of the Office of Management and Budget, to ensure that federal agencies cease and desist from using taxpayer dollars, folks, your money, to fund these divisive un-American propaganda training sessions. Accordingly to that end, the Office of Management and Budget will shortly issue more detailed guidance on implementing the president's directive. In the meantime, all agencies are directed to begin to identify all contracts or other agency spending related to any training on, quote, critical race theory, quote, white privilege, end quote. Or any other training propaganda efforts that teaches or suggests either one that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country or two, that any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil. In addition, all agencies should begin all available avenues within the law to cancel any such contracts, etc. Folks, this is the crux of the letter. This is the crux of the problem in society. All of this is an outgrowth of this leftist ideology and agenda emanating from roughly the 80s. In academia critical race theory everything is based on race and everything should be based on race in the reverse in other words critical race theory says the world is out to get minorities and the way we fix that is we give uh, benefits to minorities to offset the fact that the world is out to harm minorities that predicate is not true and that solution, therefore, is not valid, is not proper, is not moral, in fact, I will add. White privilege. How many times have you heard this term? I think we are going to have to dig into this notion of white privilege for several minutes uh, or perhaps the rest of this evening's Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM The Answer. White privilege. Well, you see, Rob, you don't seem to understand. You were born white, and, and that gives you certain benefits that if you were not born white, you wouldn't have. Hmm. Maybe on the margins on some things, and then maybe not, and the opposite, less so on the margin on other things. So overall, no, no, nope. no, nope. sorry. Untrue, folks, and you have to be willing to stand up and say untrue. Well she wrong when uh when when you were born white, uh that benefited you because uh then your family uh they bought a house in a community that uh, non whites uh couldn't buy houses well, not my community, folks. I'm not saying it didn't happen anywhere. Not my community. I grew up in a mixed community. Now, to be fair, the community was a working class community mostly Irish and Italian, and that's white. But we had uh, African-Americans, we had Hispanics. Uh, by the way, back then, Jews weren't really considered white, and, and to, in some respects, they're not considered now. But, you know, that uh, we'll talk about um, next week uh, when you tune in, we'll talk about how groups like Black Lives Matters uh, is essentially an anti-Semitic group, <clears throat> when they have essentially eviscerated from history that there has been discrimination, discrimination against Jews, discrimination against Jews. What's that? That happened? Huh? What? That's, that's, that's a black lives matter movement uh, um, in many respects. Uh, But uh, so I grew up in this diverse community. So obviously minorities were not excluded. The president of my um, uh, student body in high school was an African-American. Great guy. Absolutely charismatic, wonderful guy. Uh, okay, so that's not a that's not an all-white community. Um, uh, that's, he didn't benefit from white privilege by getting elected by the largely white student body, by the way, uh, to be the president of the student body. Mm, no white privilege there. Uh, when I applied for college, uh, if you took all of my attributes other than my race, and you uh, superimposed upon that um, a minority race, uh, that person would not be disadvantaged in applying to college. In fact, that person, depending on which race you superimposed, uh, would likely be advantaged. All right, Robert,
4: let's stop right there. we got to take a break. News is next in the 6 p.m. hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. You are listening to 101.1 FM, The Answer.
3: This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. It is the 6 o'clock hour. You may be driving home from work. If you are driving to work these days, who knows? You may be at home. Uh, You may be listening to us on the app. Whatever the case may be. I'm glad to have you listening in to 101.1 FM, The Answer, the Dave Ellswick Show. And I am honored, privileged, and humbled to be filling in for the great Dave Ellswick. Dave has done such a wonderful job over the many years here in Arkansas, and he really is an Arkansas institution. Like so many of us, including me, Dave is not originally from Arkansas, but Arkansas is our now adopted home. I think this is now the longest period that Dave has served in one location on the radio. And this is the longest period that I've lived as an adult uh, in any one place. And I absolutely love living here in Arkansas and I love identifying myself as an Arkansan. I also I hybrid identify. I hyphen identify. Can I do that, folks? Is that allowed? I don't know what's allowed in this PC culture today. I also identify as being a New Yorker in the sense that I was born and raised in New York. And you can't take that away. And I don't want to take that away. And I think New York is a wonderful place. I did not grow up in New York City, which is overwhelmingly leftist. I grew up in in an area that is more conservative than that, uh, albeit the. uh, Everyone in my school, when I went to public schools, of course, were uh, overwhelmingly – I'm talking about the teachers now – overwhelmingly leftist, and that uh, ideology did permeate through – but it wasn't strong enough to stain my thinking in terms of moving me off the correct way of thinking. That is the right way of thinking. Notice the slight pun there. We're talking about this notion, folks, of so-called white privilege. That is a discriminatory notion. That is a racist notion. To claim that people somehow are stained by being white and that they should be apologizing essentially for being white or that that inevitably, by being born white, uh, they uh, have been given advantages that people who are not born white are not given. That is not true. That is not true as a general concept. I'm not saying that certain uh, if 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 someone who's not white was discriminated against and that happens for sure in society, uh, then that person. Uh, um, uh, who uh, has suffered uh, in terms of that discrimination. And that discrimination is tied to the fact that that person is not white. But that doesn't mean that everyone who was born white benefited. No, I'm sorry. That's not true. And in fact, I I started to say before the break that uh, when I applied to college and when I applied to every – and then when I applied to law school and then every job, professional job that I applied for thereafter – uh, meaning every, every job I had thereafter is a law-related job because I went to law school, and I, and I decided to pursue that career. Other people get law degrees and go into business or something like that? Not me. I stayed in the law field one way or another. Every one of the jobs that I applied for and every school that I applied for, the fact that I was white did not help me. The fact that I was white probably worked somewhat against me. But put it another way, even if it, it may not have worked against me, because it, it, you have to look at the, the, the gross numbers, the larger numbers. It may not have worked against me. I'm perfectly happy to concede that. But put a different way, if you took everything about me but my race and flipped my race to one of the chosen minority races, then I would have been... Uh, given an advantage because of that race. That part is true. So it doesn't mean I was hurt because what we've discovered, for example, recently is that when you look at admissions to college, etc., cetera, uh, for uh, African-Americans versus Asians versus whites, African-Americans are given an, on average an advantage because of their race and who directly and mostly as a group, suffers from that, not white, a little bit maybe, Asians. Basically, the spots that if you had allocated spots wholly on merit, uh, that uh, the, the people who are hurt the most, Asian's. And that's why we have lawsuits now. We have a lawsuit against Harvard that is on appeal now. The uh, Department of Justice, that's a private lawsuit because people can sue privately for discrimination, meaning individuals who are discriminated against can sue. Or the federal government and or the federal government can sue to stop discrimination in entities receiving public fundi- funding And virtually all schools, private or public, receive overwhelming public funding, government funding. And so the federal government announced that Yale is discriminating against Asians in their admissions processes. It's really rather disgusting and insidious, folks. If you look at the files of how Asian Americans are um, treated in the admissions process, uh, there's all of this racial stereotyping uh, against Asians used to keep their numbers below what the merit factors would objectively uh, suggest their admissions should be. It's insidious racism used by leftists to keep out Asians from higher education. It's absolutely disgusting. Now, for example, you have in New York City, you have these magnet-type schools that you have to apply for, and the way you apply for it is you take an examination. And right now, I uh, think Stuyvesant, is the best magnet school. Maybe there's some argument between Stuyvesant and Bronx School of Science, uh, although, of course, the Bronx School of Science has a more science focus. But whichever one or both that you look at, they have a large Asian population because it's a test-based admission system. So, uh, Bill, uh, Mayor Bill de blah, blah, Blasio said, well, you say that can't be right because the percentage of Asians that got into the school are higher than the percentage of Asians in the population. So that's not right. That's not. Fa- Wait, what? what? But the, those are the students who scored best. Oh, well, you see, they're they're approvals. It can't be white privilege, right, folks, because they're not white. Are you allowed to say that? That's right, you are. They're not white. They don't, well, it's some other kind of privilege. What? By the way, most of those Asians are um, economically uh, in the lower strata. A a, a significant portion of of them are first-generation Americans, meaning their parents came over as immigrants and quite um, significantly often work in very uh, chore-intensive jobs to put their kids, to give their kids the best education that the kids can get. And so these people aren't rich, Uh, uh, these people are not white, and therefore suffering, I put in quotes, from the fake, quote, white privilege. And the kids do well on these entrance exams, and that's a problem for the leftists who want to distribute spots in society, be it in education, be it in employment, be it in anything, based on race alone. So who's the racist? Who's the racist? If what you're determining, what determines the outcomes is solely race, according to the left. Who's the racist? I think you know what, what the answer to that question is, right? And that's really the tragedy that we see going on in society today. Don't buy into this ideology, folks. Don't, And I know you don't, by the way. But don't be cowed by it when people are, well, you, you you can't, here's the thing, they won't let you talk, they won't let you, you can't speak, you suffer from white privilege. One of the books that is um, being disseminated uh, from academia throughout society is this book by a fellow by, whose last name is Kendi, um, I forget, is it like Ibrahim Kendi, something like that, Ibrahim? I don't remember, but Kendi. Uh, And, by the way, I suspect he's a very intelligent person. Uh, I think his ideology is all wrong. I think his claims are all wrong. But it strikes me that he's a a fairly intelligent person to be able to sell these concepts across society. And one of his claims has been, I don't know if it still is, uh, but someone suggested to me it may have uh, changed, but has been that everyone's a racist and so when groups get together to read his book uh, i'm told uh that in these reading groups often you'll hear people sort of all you go, they go across the list let's all acknowledge that we're racist not me baby not me and it ain't denial i'm not acknowledging that because i ain't no racist no sir i'm not a racist So you want to claim to be a racist, knock yourself out. By the way, go do that, and maybe you should um, drop out of whatever uh, uh, position you have if you're in academia, because I don't think racists should be in academia. So, meaning morally, uh, they, they should voluntarily, racists should voluntarily, if they recognize they're racist, should drop out of academia in any event. I'm not a racist. No, I'm not. And I'm not going to be branded by the left because I happen to be white, according to some, by the way, because as you all know, I'm Jewish. And according to others, I'm not uh, white. I remember, by the way, as a child, having a swastika painted uh, or sprayed, yeah, whatever, uh, on uh, my family's driveway. Uh, So ain't so white in that perspective. But whatever you want to call me, uh, according to the leftists now, I'm white. Fine by me, by the way. Because I view that descriptor, white, as a descriptor of race based on appearance, uh, uh, and that is a, um, uh, um, what is it? Uh, it's, a, it's a it's an appearance that is um, biological, meaning passed down through our genes, so that's fine. You can call me white, because if you look at me, I have the skin, you know, it's not actually white, it's kind of this pale, pink or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I have that skin, so that's fine. I'm white. I have no problem with that but i won't be branded a racist i won't be branded from benefiting from white privilege as part of this leftist progressive ideology which is a uh, a, a more uh, a mutation of marxism no i will not and i certainly don't accept nor do i want to see the left spending taxpayer dollars to try to indoctrinate people into this ideology. Nope. So the Office of Management and Budget is absolutely right to put a stop to this. By the way, why did it take so long to put a stop to this? I'll tell you why. Because mid level bureaucrats in any government organization more so than being leftist, as I suspect most still are, because they have they have burrowed in like a tick they are fearful what mid-level bureaucrats do in government is they perpetuate their own existence so they don't make waves it's about staying under the radar it's about being the nail that doesn't get hammered because you are flush with the wood and so when people start well you know you better start bringing in this lecture it talks about white privilege because the other agencies are doing oh okay yeah i'll do that too yeah yeah yeah, i'll do that too nonsense Nonsense. Grow a spine, you jellyfish. And that's what this director of the Office of Management and Budget has fi- has done. And finally so. And it's it's about time. So the notion of white privilege as being a pervasive concept is simply untrue. Frankly, the biggest privilege that we see in society today is economic. If you're born rich, you have all sorts of quote, privileges, end quote, that being poor doesn't? Well, of course. Because if you're the kid of a rich person, you never have a want for a roof over your head. You never have to want for food on the table. You never have to want for warmth in the home. And if you grow up uh, poor, some of those may be actual wants,
4: all when right, Robert, up. let's yes. let's pick up that uh let's pick up that <laughs> thought in the next segment, our final segment of the Dave Elswick Show in the six PM hour. You are listening to one oh one point one FM the answer.
3: This is the Dave Elswick Show here in the six o'clock hour on one oh one point one FM the answer. I, as you hopefully know at this point, having listened to most of this hour, am Robert Steinbuck filling in for the wonderful Dave Elswick. I'm honored privilege and humble to be able to do so and i appreciate his trust in my limited abilities folks this is the last segment uh of the hour and we are off uh meaning the dave ellswick show is off 101.1 fm the answer continues with its excellent content so stay tuned for the next show that's on uh and we're just going to finish up talking about today we're going to continue these topics folks by the way listen in next week uh in the morning and in the evening i will be filling in for dave all week uh and remember to uh follow me on the InstaBook, book insta post instagram uh, as i like to call it um at rob steinbuck at R O B S T E I N B U C H on the insta post and you can become my 16th follower Uh, In any event, we're talking about race in America, and that's uh, an apt topic because it is being discussed significantly throughout mainstream media, significantly by the left. All of that is fine in terms of having those discussions. I don't fault the left for talking about the topic. I fault the left for being wrong on the topic. That's the problem. The topic is fine. Their description thereof and solutions thereto are wrong. And it's that plain and simple. And it's highly unfortunate, of course, as well. The conservative principle when it comes to race is it is interesting and um, uh, culturally enjoyable to recognize differences in our cultures, in our races, in, in in different backgrounds. Whatever descriptor of the differing background you choose to use and and focus on at the moment but those factors are not factors of merit either way that's the point either way so if you're white you're not entitled to any advantage for being white and for those few relatively few and i believe it is relatively few racists in american society today if you believe your race makes you better you're wrong And if you're on the left and you believe that your race uh, of a different race, of a minority race, makes your race either better or entitled to some benefit or entitled to some privilege or entitled to some uh, uh, affirmative uh, step up in status, you're wrong, too. And I will finish up this thought with, as I said this morning on the radio, uh, the quote from. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has been wrong on some things, but been right to be fair on other things. And he said the best way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating. And you don't fix discrimination by flipping the discrimination. No, you don't. I have a good friend of mine, a colleague of mine, who says, well, you know, there was 200 years. Well, it's probably much 400 years of discrimination in America, depending when you start that count. Right. Because, you know, the the left now starts the history of America at 1619. Okay. Uh, by the way, that the whole 1619 project is just a propaganda effort. It's just not accurate. But whatever timing you want to use, uh, there were hundreds of years of racial discrimination. Absolutely a fact. Absolutely a fact. She says, well, it took hundreds of years of discrimination. It should take that long to fix it. What? 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 You ever have a set of, uh, say, uh, concrete or brick steps uh, at a building collapse eventually? Yeah, because it takes hundreds of years. Not hundreds, but it takes decades and decades of water seeping into those bricks to loosen them up, and eventually they crumble. How long does it take to fix them? Two days? Four days? If you have a good mason? Because what do they do? They take out the old brick, and they build it up like new. You have heart disease. How long does it take to build up heart disease? Years and years and years of eating high fat, and sometimes not, depending on your own physiology. And it takes decades to build that up. And then how do they open up that partially closed artery? With an angioplasty. It takes about an hour. So don't tell me it takes that long to fix the problem as it does that the problem existed. That is nonsense. It's silly. It's a trick. Don't fall for the tricks of the left. The left is wonderful at taking a shiny ball, waving it up in the air, and say, pay attention to this. When they stick their hands in your pocket to steal your money. When they manipulate uh, the education system to permeate it with uh, neo-Marxist ideology. Don't fall for it. Conservative ideology has been successful. Racism is not a conservative ideology, by the way. No, it is not. Conservative ideology is a belief in working hard, a belief that you are better off if you get married before you have children, if you wait to get married just a little bit so that you don't do it at an excessively young age, if you get at least a high school education, If you uh, respect sufficiently, not uh, blindly, but sufficiently, authority. Those are all examples of conservative ideologies. If you follow those ideologies, you will live a better life than if you follow the opposite. I guarantee it. History has demonstrated. We can demonstrate that, in fact, empirically. So let's not buy into what is leftist ideology? Because we can also demonstrate that leftist ideology has not been good to its adherents. No, the, the leftist ideology that believes in the, that the family unit is irrelevant. That basically espouses the breakdown of the family unit. Uh, well, look to see whether the breakdown of the family unit has been good for those members and good for society. I'm not saying people don't get divorced. I'm not saying that families don't break apart. I'm not saying that people uh, don't die in a family, right? All those things happen. But are they good or bad things? They're not good. The outcomes are not good. They happen. Sometimes uh, it's necessary. I'm talking about the divorce, not the death, obviously. Uh, But those things happen and they're unavoidable.
4: All right, Robert. Thank you so much. Uh, We will see you all next week when you are filling in for Dave. That's awesome. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you so much, Robert. You've been listening to The Dave Elswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Dave Elswick will be back tomorrow for Friday, Friday, fun day, here on 101.1 FM, The Answer.